You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Hi, I'm Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. My dad, Bo Hilleberg, a lifelong outdoorsman, founded Hilleberg 50 years ago, and we've been family-owned, family-operated, and European-made ever since. We proudly specialize in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Our tents have been specifically chosen by polar expeditions, mountaineers, backpackers, and avid outdoor adventurers just like you all over the world. We build tents for everyone's adventure. This is Diggle McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AHA. Until the start of July, the speed record for climbing Mescalito, a 26-pitch aid route on the southeast face of El Cap in Yosemite Valley, was about 23 and a half hours. That record was set in 1998 by Dean Potter, Russ Mitrovich, and Jose Perea. At the time, it was considered a big deal that they went under 24 hours on this classic aid climb. Flash forward 22 years. Brandon Adams, a Yosemite ranger, had never done this route, and Roger Putnam had only done it once before. But the two already held three El Cap speed records together, and they not only finished Mescalito in a day, they were able to walk down in daylight. They finished in a little under 13 hours and 47 minutes, taking nearly 10 hours off the record. In episode 31 of The Cutting Edge, we speak with both men. Our guest interviewer is Lauren Delaney, herself a serious Yosemite climber, She's a member of the OSAR team, and she wrote the Yosemite Report for this year's AHA. The internet isn't amazing in Yosemite Valley, so there are a few cutouts here and there, and Roger apparently was recording from inside a hall bag. But bear with us. These guys have some great insights about speed climbing, choosing objectives, safety, and partnership. I hope you enjoy it. All right. I'm here with Brandon Adams and Roger Putnam to have a conversation about what these two have been up to in Yosemite recently. Before we get started, would you mind maybe introducing yourselves, what you do, and what your connection to Yosemite is? Sure. Um, So my name is Brandon Adams. I live and work here in Yosemite as a climbing ranger. I've been climbing here for the past seven or eight years and um, primarily climbing big walls. That's just where my inspiration is lied. And um, I've really taken to it. Roger Putnam and I have had a, a lot of really good adventures up there. So excited about getting into that with you. I, I moved to Yosemite in, in 2006 and um, ended up staying until 2011 and getting really into rock climbing in the meantime. And uh, yeah, since 2011, I've just managed to continue my connection to the place. I co-authored the... Uh, guidebook to climbing the big walls in Yosemite and um, did a whole lot of research about the geology of El Cap. And um, yeah, I met Brandon, um, I don't remember, 2014 or something like that. And um, we've had a pretty fantastic collaboration ever since. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what our first climb together was. I'm sure it was something on El Cap. Do you remember what it was? I think our first attempt at a climb together was chaos. <laughs> was that our first one? 
Oh, man. That was our first attempt. I'm pretty yeah, and then the waterfall sure. route before it fell off. <laughs> yeah, and then we tried to do the waterfall route, but I took a huge whipper. And then the third time we climbed together, um, we we set um, the waterfall route. And so in addition to the waterfall route, you guys have a couple other LCAP speed records together. Isn't that right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, we've got Flight of the Albatross and the Shield and Waterfall Route. And mostly uh, this latest one was the Mescalito. Awesome. Well, let's dive into Mescalito then. Um, I'm wondering if you could just tell us, for those that don't know, a bit about the route, maybe where it's located, some of its history. For sure. Yeah. So Mescalito uh, goes up a part of the wall that's called the Wall of Early Morning Light. It's oriented more to the east than the rest of El Capitan. It gets light first thing in the morning. Um, popularized by the Dawn Wall, uh, Tommy and Kevin's um, famous free route goes up in that that area as well. But the Mescalito is, or Mescalito is, um, see, like a 26 pitch route, uh, roughly 3,000 feet tall, uh, fairly sustained C3, A2, aid climbing, um, really beautiful route. Um, when Roger and I were recently up there, it was my first time on the route. And um, it's amazing that, I mean, it's just kind of surprising that I hadn't been on it before because it's just, it's got to be one of the more classic routes on El Capitan. I was recently reading an interview with Charlie Porter um, where he was discussing, um, yeah, some of his favorite ascents that he's ever done. Um, And he called Mescalito, quote, a good time. It's clean. It's never really dangerous. It's just a good, fun route. Um, It fits our style really well. So uh, Roger is is an amazing uh, free climber and French free climber and moderate A climber. He just flies at that stuff. And that's essentially what this route is. Um, and it fit my style as well. And we were just looking at it as, you know, a great objective up a beautiful part of the wall that um, I hadn't been on before. And um, I'd wanted to do it for so long. It just seemed like the perfect route for us. Yeah, Brandon is always bothering me to do harder climbs. <laughs> and, and, and I, I really... I. Got no idea how much I want to scratch that itch for him, but I've got I, I'm, I'm I've got like dad brain now, and I can't do the scary egg climbing the way that I used to be more into. So I mean, I just I just don't have the time these days for you know multi day missions. Like I want to do something where I can leave the ground and be sure that I can be off of it in like twelve to eighteen hours, and then drive home and change diapers. But that being said, I mean, we went into this not really knowing how long it was going to take. I mean, right. I was I was going into it like, geez, man, like Dean Potter, Russ, I mean, the really talented team took like 23, 30. And uh, so I was like, man, this might be a long one. Yeah, we definitely like try to be under in the fun threshold below 15 hours. But this one, I was like, you know, if we're below 18, I'm psyched and it just came together. Completely. And, and the pitches just kept flying by. Like, you know, we, the, the first handful of pitches on the route are, are more low angle um, and involve some fixed gear and, and, and a lot of piton scars and so on. And, and they go pretty quickly anyway. But then once we got towards like it's five, six, where you begin getting into more of the kind of A3 sections, the, the, the harder pitches on the route and the pitches were going just as fast as they had below it suddenly felt like this was going to be something 
a really, really, really special time that we were going to make this happen really quickly. And then we got to the Bismarck, um, which is a, a, a dinner table sized ledge, pitch 18. And it's the first significant ledge that you've had in like 2000 feet of climbing. And, and, and yeah, checked it, got there and checked the time. And it was like two in the afternoon. We'd started at 5.30. Like, we were like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. I will say, though, that, I mean, a lot of people assume that we're up there, you know, just like running or being reckless and like super adrenaline-filled sport and the speed climbing is. And, you know, perhaps there's an element to that, but I don't think it's nearly as big of an element as a lot of people realize. Instead of just like, I think, running and, and speed for speed's sake, it's really focused on like efficiency and constant movement. So it took us, okay, so like 13 hours and 46 minutes, 47 minutes, right, to climb Mescalito, which is 3,000 feet. When you do the math, like we really aren't actually moving that fast. We're just moving consistently and efficiently and like, you know, taking the time to like laugh and pick the right track on our on our tool album you know and uh it's it's just a really good time it's not it's not as uh i I think reckless as a lot of people think exactly and and caring for ourselves because um i I remember one of the first times that i was uh on el cap is that my second time attempting the nose i was passed by hans and yuji and they were breaking they were taking the record back from the hubers and they passed us at Sickle Ledge. And I look over to Hans. I'm like, how fast? How, how, how are you guys doing? And he's like, he looks at his watch. He's like, two minutes behind. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, it's no problem. Start out slow. You go, go, go. You start out fast. You're not going to last. And I have just felt that so strongly with, with, with this, um, with, with climbing El Cap in pushes. Um, that you just move efficiently. Protecting yourself. Place gear, mm-hmm. be safe, do what you need to to take care of your body, um, because then you'll you'll have fun. And that's what it's all supposed to be about. Right, totally. We hauled on the route. Even you know, we we had good food. We had we left the ground with two gallons of water, and we found a gallon of water up there. I mean, we were we were living comfortable up there for the most part. It was just a lot of fun. Yeah. So, how did you break up the day? Uh, maybe you can give us maybe not a pitch by pitch, but an overall look at kind of what that day looked like. How did you break up the blocks and uh, maybe some of the most memorable pitches? You want to start it off, Roger? Oh, sure. As Brendan said earlier, I, I, I've, I've figured out how to French free and do moderate aid pretty dang quickly. And so um, the bottom part of the route, the first five pitches are lower angle. Um, and there's not, there, there's nothing extraordinarily tricky about it. So that was that was my uh, I started I started this off and then after the fifth pitch you get to um, Anchorage Lane. At that point, Brandon took the lead um, and he led. the The next pitch is like a, 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 a it's called the Seagull. It goes underneath this feature which looks just like a seagull when you're looking at it from El Camino, and it involves a couple of pendulums. And then there are four or five pitches um, that go up this just sweeping, beautiful, obtuse corner system. I think those are my favorite pitches on the route. They're just stunning. Um, they end at the molar, 
um, which is a big old, a couple of exfoliation flakes, which kind of dangle down um, and you do some pendulums to get around that. And, uh, and then after that, uh, there, there are a couple of more moderate pitches and then you get to the, the only shit pitches. Can I swear on this podcast? <laughs> um, and these are a series of rivet ladders interspersed with thin aid climbing. Um, and these rivet ladders were placed back by, uh, by the first ascent team um, in the early 70s. And so they are just really, really in, in, in complete disrepair. You know, it's actually funny about that. So a team has gone up Mescalito since we were up there. And uh, one of the rivets, uh, one, of, one of my friends, um, he just, as he was climbing it, he just touched a rivet and pulled it out of the wall and it snapped. Uh, <laughs> we were light that day. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty funny. I guess he wasn't even standing on it. He just reached up and pulled it out of the wall. How did he get past it? Um, he was able to bat hook in the hole. But yeah, there's some there's some really poor hardware in those few pitches. Yeah, and it's it's just such a it's 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 such a dismaying thing after climbing a rapid that is so clean and so flawless, and you get to this part which which wasn't dangerous for the first several decades of the climb's existence, but but at this point you you, you climb those pitches and you feel like if you pull one of those awful things, you're gonna you're not just going to take a fall. You're going to erase the whole pitch. <laughs> so, uh, so after those, after those rivet ladders, um, you then get to the Bismarck ledge, which as I said before, it's like a coffee table size. Oh no, a bit larger than a coffee table size ledge, um, which is, it, it's um, just such a welcome thing to get to in the middle of this really, really, really steep, really, um, intimidating wall you suddenly are standing on it's like you feel like a like a like a like a shipwrecked mariner <laughs> finally watching the show and just like yes I'm a, I'm a human i'm supposed to be standing on my feet um at that point the angle kicks down a bit um it, it becomes a bit less steep than before um and it dominantly goes up larger cracks so um, a lot of it is actually French freeable. Um, so that's why I took that upper block from pitch 18 to uh, the top at pitch 26. Um, yeah, mostly goes up slitter cracks and, and some thinner cracks which are kind of pinned out. If I was in better shape or if I was one of the kinds of people who think about climbing the Dawn Wall, like you can see how those pitches are just really, really easy for 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 folks who climb really, really hard. Like all, any one of those pitches from there to the top, I felt like if it was on the ground and I was fresh, I could on site. But like, yeah, as it was, I, I was in my ladder the whole the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now you were, you were flying, man. It's so fun to watch. But yeah, we, we topped out and it was well before day, well before sunset. And it was just so wild because my goal, I dearly, 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 dearly hoped that we could get to the Bismarck a few hours before dark because there's a pitch, two pitches off the Bismarck, which is like all circuitous and involves some weird route finding. And I was like, oh man, I dearly hope that I, that I can lead that pitch in the daylight. If I can lead that pitch in the daylight, 
all will be fine. And it was so wild to walk down in the daylight. So, yeah, that sums up what the route is like and what the character is. I think we, we divided the pitches up based upon our respective strengths. And we've, been, we've climbed a lot together. And so we, we, know what we're, we, we know what we're good at. I think uh, one of the reasons why this went so quickly, we just know each other really well. And we know what it's like to climb with the other person and how to best support the other and I guess, as you were kind of alluding to earlier, in danger of sounding like the rock jocks, like, oh, it was totally fine and casual and easy. Like, yeah, I mean, uh, most people are spending, you know, like, average probably four to six nights on, on this wall. Um, My first time on that route, it was, uh, it was, we spent five days and we topped out at our wit's end. Like, we might as well have just landed on the moon. Yeah, and I I didn't have that experience on this route, but I had that experience on on several others, many others when I was learning how to wall climb, you know. And it's just really cool seeing the whole progression over the years of finally these sorts of things that I once thought were, you know, impossible, certainly impossible for me, maybe possible for for the legends that I, you know, looked up to in those days. It's it's cool to have those those sorts of missions finally be possible for for, you know, people like you and I. It's it's such a cool thing. But do you think then that some of that just comes from how much time you both have spent on El Cap? I mean, together you must have dozens of like total ascents, whether it's wall style or in a day pushes. Do you think that's one of the factors that's led to this progression? For sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I it, I think especially um, aid climbing, which, you know, there's there's a lot of systems and you know, technical aspects to the climbing that are really hard to visualize unless you actually have done them, you know, and done them a lot so that they become second nature and done them perhaps with the partner, you know, it, it just takes time and it's a lot of work, you know, but um, it's also you know, super I, inspiring. I'm watching my toddler just like eat shit all the time. <laughs> you know, like he's walking and he just trips over his foot and he falls and he does it and he smashes his face on the ground. You know, and it's like, it's like, of course he's not good at walking. He's only been doing it for a little while. And like the same is true for, of course, for aid climbing. Like it's, it's, there's, there's just muscle memory in this kinesthetic system, which needs to be like worked into your, the fiber of your being. And yeah. So, so that's why, that's why doing it with anyone who's been doing it for a really long time, it's completely different than someone who is just getting into it. And by just getting into it, I don't mean like, you know, someone attempting their first few eight pitches. I mean, like when I watch people who've done, you know, maybe 10 LCAP routes, they look different. When you see somebody who knows how to eight climb well, it flows if it's really actually pretty to watch as opposed to somebody who is, is just learning how to aid climb where it's kind of clunky and they're tying themselves up a true aid climbing professional, you know, expert. It, it just, everything flows and everything has a order and a, a, there's a, a clear system, but it's not that he's like in his mind like this, then this, then this, then this, he's just like using a tool and his group of tools as like as an extension of his body, you know, to like climb these walls efficiently. And it's, it's a really cool thing to watch. 
Right, totally. Like like Steve Gerberding is like, you know, you watch him or people like him do a climbing. It's like watching Anamandra free climb. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, that totally. Beauty, that's beauty in motion. And 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 watching most people aim climb is like going to. I don't know, the warm-up wall in the gorge and watching people try to free climb, like shoes scumming all over the place, right. you know? Like, just like, 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 and, and, and that's not, like, I'm not casting aspersions. It's just because yeah, done it. Yeah, well, and speaking of aid climbing, I've kind of been wondering just a bit of a more technical question about how much nailing you guys did and if you feel like you're doing anything differently when it comes to that. And then also kind of what the role of, fixed gear or the lack of fixed gear kind of is important on routes like these, especially when you're trying to go fast. For sure. Well, so I think first we should talk a little bit maybe about um, gear advances that have happened um, in the last decade, you know, with modern, modern cams being totems and the larger beaks that make routes like this so much quicker and easier and safer i mean it's, it made a huge impact in um our ability to climb not just this route quickly and efficiently but i'd say a lot of routes you know um so the rack um on a lot of the topos that you're going to find for routes like mescalito includes things like lost arrows and knife blades and angles and things so pitons of, of that sort and we didn't use any of those um really you can get through with largely Number three, large beaks, nuts, and, and totem cams, offset cams, and hooks. And um, when you like reduce your quiver to just those few things, it's you know goes a lot more quickly than trying to stack knife blades into a weird weird scar. Um, in terms of amount of nailing that we did up there, um, we definitely nailed. Um, and I, when speed climbing, we, I mean, we don't hesitate to to place those, those large beaks, but uh, you don't want to over nail them because then they're a lot harder to clean. And we're nailing only when, you know, a cam doesn't fit in well and so on. Um, but we nailed, I, I think less than I expected to, um, just because the nature of Mescalito is there's a lot of really great cracks that do take cams. Well, do take hooks. Well, um, so even on our speed ascent, I don't know how many, we probably nailed a few dozen times. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I was actually thinking about this the other day. I'm, I'm pretty sure I nailed an awful lot more when I did it as a wall. Mm-hmm. Back when it was like the first big, large, aid-intensive wall that I've done, I'm very sure I did. I had a rack of mostly sawed-off angles and knife blades and ropes. And I remember like trying awesome. to like shove <laughs> these knife blades and ropes into these weird pin scar things, you know, like into the bottom of pin scars and, and, and using every single sawed off of my rack. And there was even one pitch where I lowered down and back cleaned sawed offs and went back up and it was, and, and, so funny. yeah. So, I mean, and, and, and that's because when I did that ascent in like 2008 or nine, the, Big beaks weren't uh, as as prevalent as they are now. They weren't an accepted, understood, critical part of a big wall rack. The gear advances have proven to be just 
completely essential to making these routes go more quickly. Now, for sure, we're, we're, we're not more fit than Dean Potter. No, hell no. <laughs> we are not more fit and we are not more bold than that guy, right? No, and, of course not. And yet we broke his record by 10 hours. Like, we're, you know, we're not better. We just have better gear. Yeah, but do you think that, I mean, can that really account for 10 hours worth of climbing? Or do you feel like there's something else going on with, I mean, were they short fixing? Are you guys self-belaying? Like, is anything else different in the systems other than just having more beaks? I think Roger is selling himself short a little bit, but it's true that we aren't as fit as, as Dean. And we certainly aren't as bold and Dean as Dean in certain respects. Um, but I, and the, the gear does, it's huge. It, I think it definitely, I mean, I, I wouldn't say no to somebody saying that it uh, cut off six hours, but um, I think there's also, you know, the systems have advanced um yeah. our style has advanced we're a team of two as opposed to a team of three uh, yeah. roger and i flowed really well and i think we climbed really well and had a lot of fun doing it um and you know it's something i'm really proud of and i think roger could be really proud of and it's not just the gear but the gear definitely was a huge component of it right and so uh yeah, one thing I've just been wondering about is that kind of what the motivation was, and it seems like achieving this flow state was probably part of it for you guys. But you know, you could have break broken the speed record. You had such a margin there, right? Like you could have gone a lot slower and still broken the speed record. And so I'm wondering if the motivation was more for the record, or if there's some other kind of thing that you guys are looking for um, in trying to go as fast as you can. You know, totally. Actually, I've been having this conversation with Roger as we're picking routes, uh, that we want to climb together. You know, ego is a, is a constant thing in rock climbing, whatever style of rock climbing you're in. There's a lot of ego in our sport and it's something that is definitely prevalent and, and, uh, present in speed climbing and chasing records. And that's something that I'm trying to consciously avoid and consciously trying to follow the route that truly inspires me rather rather than the route that I know that we can get the record on. Um, I'm, I'm like consciously fighting that sense of ego because I, I want to be chasing what is truly going to make me happy. But it's, it's a constant decision and it, it takes a lot of, I think, self-awareness when you're, when you're planning your missions. I've, I definitely have moments where I sit back and I'm like, why am I doing this? Is it for the right reasons? And as soon as I decide that it is, and I know that it is, then I'm all in and it's, it's a ton of fun. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, Brandon and I could like go to, uh, if we wanted to, I think we could go to well over a dozen routes on El Cap and tie in and get to the top faster than other people have just because as we were just talking about the gear and our techniques that we've worked out together. But that's not necessarily what we want to do. It's not because we want to avoid this this ego, <laughs> and 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 we and we, and we want to climb a spot. It's just all about maximizing these precious seconds we have on this planet. Right. I mean, at the same time, your records are. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say that records are a super dangerous thing. You know, they have the potential of of stealing the moment from you. You know, if you're up there for just the record, then you know, you got to be careful to not 
miss the experience of being up there. Those those really special moments. Totally. Like like one of my favorite moments from our Mescalino mission was like eating a sandwich in the middle of your <laughs> block. Man. I don't know if you remember, but it was like right before that yeah. five nine. Totally. That picture starts off with that five nine wide bit, but uh, we we like I hold up I got I caught up to you all of the bag and we sat there and took three minutes and ate sandwiches. And if we were just purely trying to like get the, get the number down as low as possible, then then we wouldn't have in, in, indulged in that moment of, of, of sublimeness. As fast as you guys are going, you're also going into it essentially with very little information, right? Like I think Sometimes it's overlooked how much whittling down of time goes into some more popular speed records. And for you guys to climb at this speed, you know, Brandon having never climbed it, Roger, you've climbed it years ago. Um, I mean, surely you could turn around this week and probably shave even more time off with all this information that you have about the route now. Um, um, that doesn't sound like fun. That sounds like a grind. Yeah, that sounds like work. What we had was a really pure pure experience you know it's about chasing the adventure it's not about beating the record per se but the record is just the cherry on top you know yeah like there are a lot of things i'd love to do with brandon and we spend a lot of time talking about them and 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 going and trying to shave a few out a few minutes off of off of our climb that sounds awful and it's also like a silly thing because we're just like playing the game with ourselves (laughs) but then then, you know if someone were to go and break that record i wouldn't want to go back and try to get it again i just wouldn't at all Mm -hmm. because i just want to go do something else and experience part of the wall have a new adventure and a new time i don't i don't want to be up there with a gun to my head saying that that that's that that is insisting that i climb super fast all the time that's just not how I want to be. Yeah. And so thinking back, thinking back to something that you mentioned earlier, Roger, about Brandon trying to twist your arm into climbing more difficult routes with him. I've definitely been wondering if you guys ever disagree within your partnership about risk tactics and how you kind of deal with that within your partnership. Yeah. I, I don't think so. Do we? No, I don't think we really disagree all that much, which is actually really, really cool. Um, most, most, it's hard to find people that I don't like, what I don't think that system sounds perfect, you know, like, but with you, it's just everything you say totally makes sense. And usually we're about to say the same thing and it works out well. It's just a great partnership. Cheers. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think I, 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 I mean, I, I never look at Brandon at all. think he's doing something sketchy. Whereas almost all of my other partners, I think that about them, Many times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we can't really have a conversation about speed climbing on El Cap without mentioning, you know, a couple of the big high in the past couple of years. And I'm just curious if that had any effect on the way you approach things, if maybe you, you know, noticed a change in your attitude following some of those accidents or um, and then you've been able to rebound or if you feel like it caused any sense of reevaluation, maybe for this type of climbing for you guys. So, yeah, for sure. Accidents make you make you think twice about entering into a similar environment, you know. But the way that we speed climb objectively when I look at it perfect like 
objectively. Um, I think we've found a pretty good balance where we're able to uh, get rid of a lot of those those dangers for ourselves. We're able to maintain a pretty relative level of safety that feels good to me. And it's also just something that's so important to me that it's worth the, the risk, you know. Um, it's in many ways, you know, what I define myself as, and it's, it's such an important part of my life that, um, it's worth the risks. And, and I don't want to live a life where I've eliminated all risk. It's a, it's, a, it's a life not worth living. Life is all about, you know, even if you're not a speed climber or a climber at all, life is all about mitigating risk and having as much fun as you can. And I don't want to say that I never do things that aren't risky. But I, what I do want to say is that when I climb a route like the one that we just did, um, like the mesco, like Mescalino, or mo- a bit, basically almost all of the climbing I do with Brandon, I feel like I am taking fewer risks than if I were to go climb the nose. Because if I were to climb the nose, I'd be, you know, moving fast, trying to place the gear as I could, clipping a lot of fixed gear for, you know, critical pieces of protection. Whereas on Mescalito, we're not just pulling in a loop of slack and climbing, we're short fixing. So I'm on, I'm belaying myself while I'm, while I'm, while I'm leading and I'm tagging up all, I'm tagging up gear on every single pitch. So that means I have as much gear as I want. Um, you know, if I go climb the nose or the Salafe or lurking fear, I don't bring a tagline on those. So I'm just like trying to string together as many pitches I can and mostly clip fixed gear. It's just way more dangerous feeling than the type of climbing that Brandon and I do. Um, I mean, Lauren, you mentioned high profile accidents and my goodness, like the, um, there have been a couple which have hit me really hard um, and made me climb those easier routes that are more prone to runouts and sketchy behavior, such as the nose. Um, they've made me be more aware and really try not to take unnecessary risks. Tim Klein hit me really, really, really hard. Tim Klein's death. Um, and uh, because he, he and I had climbed El Cap together a, a handful of times right before his and Jason's accident. Um, and um, he also lives in Southern California and he also is a dad. And so we had this like budding partnership of just like ripping up from Southern California and rattling off an El Cap climb or two and then, and then heading back down to our, to our families and our, our, our jobs. And, um, and, and he was, he always felt so safe to me. And the fact that he could pass from this and he left and, and, and he left behind a family like that just, man, it, 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 it hit me really hard. Um, and I think I like to think, and I try to, believe that it has caused me to be safer but i don't know it's hard to see how safe you're being when you're on the inside everyone thinks they're being safe all the time it's important to be aware of that and to try to look at yourself from the outside and be like wait was that safe was it safe was it really safe (laughs) you know but yeah right on on the on the nose like roger's saying you know you're 
clipping a couple pieces of questionable fixed gear potentially, you know, on a route like Mescalito, we're leaving protection every 10 feet. Yeah. I played more gear on pit on, on, on several pitches of Mescalito than I would in five pitches on the nose. Right. Like, and that, I don't think that's an exaggeration. Mm-hmm. And getting so. back, getting back into uh touching, I guess a little back step, but mm-hmm. um, what makes a good eighth climber or what experience eighth climbing can, can give you is um, trying to determine, I like to say, what what is a phantom fear and what is a real fear. So yes. looking up at those big walls, you know, it's super scary. There's a lot of fear involved. And sometimes you're up there and you're hanging off of a really good, you know, number two cam. And you're just like, in your mind, it's like, everything's going to explode. This rope's going to cut and I'm going to fall to the ground and die right now. That that's, you got to like train your mind to realize that that's just a phantom fear. That's not a real fear. You're actually safe. But then you've also got to train yourself to realize what the real dangers are and then separate that from phantom fear and do something about them. So if you it's like, I'm afraid right now, why am I afraid? Because I'm in danger. So I'm going to place a cam here and leave that one. And experience up on the wall gives you that, that perspective, that ability to, you know, more accurately anyways, uh, look at a situation and address the real hazards and then keep going and have fun you know and yeah adrenaline allocation that's pretty damn important (laughs) there's always more looking forward you guys have anything planned anything coming up i i mean i i I just very deeply look forward to climbing with brandon this fall and normally uh our our lives are just uh, so so busy and we're in such separate orbits that we aren't able to climb much together but uh but this coming fall i uh uh, so because of because of this stupid virus, um, I'm teaching remotely, um, and I'm also teaching remotely in the spring now. So I have basically a year where I don't need to be in Southern California. So I expect to be able to pull off a lot more time in Yosemite than I have the past couple of years. So I deeply look forward to climbing more with Brandon and all the other amazing people who that the valley seems to attract. Yeah, well, the valley's looking quite different these days with the reservation system, and it's a if you can get in, it's a good time to be up on El Cap. That's for sure. Oh man, it's it's a good, it's such a good time to be there. We we were there the week after it opened, and I'm, one of my favorite memories in life is like walking down the middle of El Cap Bridge with no cars, with like my kid on my shoulders, and just like after swimming and not hearing cars, it's. It's a magical time to be there. I shouldn't say that. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you can't even get a cheeseburger, or can you? Oh, you definitely can. You kidding? Yosemite Valley, man. It's not Yosemite without cheeseburgers. <laughs> no. But yeah, it's super, super special here. Awesome. Well, anything else you guys want to touch on from Mescalito? Um, I just want to say that it was definitely one of the like real special moments in climbing. Um, I think one of the like top three days of climbing I'll ever have in my life. And it was cool realizing that even as the climb was going, as the climb was progressing, progressing, I remember, I don't know, it was probably like pitch nine or 10 or something. And uh, I was just like climbing smoothly and efficiently and looking around and it was just so beautiful. And like one of my favorite tool songs came on and I just like, in the midst of like climbing, I was like smiling so hard that I like started crying and then I started like singing and then it was just like in the wind and looking down at Roger and it was just like, everything was perfect. It was just like one of those perfect, perfect moments that I'll just remember for like 
for the rest of my life. Yeah, that's awesome. I feel like not to expose myself as too much of a nerd, but I feel like on days like that, I'm always thinking of that. Um, maybe you guys have heard it, this Vonnegut quote where he says, and I urge you to please notice when you're happy and exclaim or murmur or think at some point, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Totally. And uh, it sounds like that's just the sort of day that you guys were having. Heck yeah. Yeah, you got to scream it out loud. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. This was a really, really fun conversation and it's hard to not want to rush up onto the walls right away after listening to you guys talk about how much fun you're having up there. Thanks for having us, Lauren. This was awesome. Thanks to Brandon, Roger, and Lauren for this fresh insight into big wall speed climbing. Thanks also to Hilleberg the Tentmaker for making the cutting edge possible. Visit Hilleberg.com for complete info on their world-renowned tents. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climbs.